Please stand as you are able for today's New Testament lesson from the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. I am grateful to Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he judged me faithful and appointed me to his service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a man of violence. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are Christ Jesus. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But for that very reason I received mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display the utmost patience, making me an example to those who would come to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I am giving you these instructions, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made earlier about you, so that, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, having faith and a good conscience. By rejecting conscience, certain persons have suffered shipwreck in the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have turned over to Satan so that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Charlie, thank you for reading our lesson and many thanks to Mason and our praise team for leading us in worship and Laura for leading us in prayer. We're so glad that you're here uh, today, especially after last Sunday. Uh, we were completely online uh, last Sunday because of the weather. And I understand today we have a heat wave this afternoon. We're gonna hit 46 today. So get out your t-shirts and your shorts. It'll feel mighty nice uh, after the, the cold that we've had below freezing and, and really almost into single digits. Uh, we're so grateful you're here. And Laura, thank you for the announcement about the grief support. Uh, I think after yesterday, what happened at the Titan Stadium, we all may need a little grief support today. Uh, but we're glad you're here this morning for uh, this series that we actually started uh, last week online. And we greet those of you who are with us online. It's a privilege to be with you. Uh, last week, only online, as we started a new series called Love Uncontaminated. And we're continuing that in the second week. Um, and I want to read a passage in a few minutes from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the opening section of this letter. We actually read it last week. I'm going to read a portion of that in a few moments. But before we do that, let me just kind of bring you up to snuff uh, to review just a moment about this particular series. First Timothy is one of three what we call epistles or letters in the New Testament which we often refer to as the pastoral letters. Uh, there's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Uh, they are different from Paul's other letters in that they were not written to entire faith communities, like the letter to the Ephesians or Corinthians, uh, Colossians. Those were written to entire faith communities. But the pastoral epistles were written to individuals who were leading faith communities. In other words, these are personal letters written to leaders and missionaries of the church who were positioned there to lead in a second generation. Uh, both Timothy and Titus were co-workers 
colleagues of Paul. In fact, Paul often referred to them as his own children because he had mentored them. And in fact, Timothy likely was converted because of the preaching of Paul. And so these two pastors, Timothy and Titus, were mentored and appointed to communities, to shepherd churches that were originally established by the Apostle Paul. In Timothy's case, he was sent to a city called Ephesus, which was a leading city of Asia Minor. And with the help of the Roman postal service, with the Romans post office, Paul, through correspondence, through mail, tutored and taught and guided Timothy in the trenches of ministry in the city of Ephesus. Now, I wanna, I wanna advise you to read these two letters. It's remarkable how relevant they are and how instructive they are to the church of the 21st century who today are trying to share the gospel, trying to proclaim the gospel in a very difficult situation and in a shifting culture. We noted last week in the opening section of this letter that Timothy is likely struggling in ministry. In fact, it's interesting, Charlie, in the passage that you read, read a moment ago that Paul speaks of ministry as fighting the good fight. And there are good ways to fight and bad ways to fight, but it's a struggle. The word fight in the Greek means struggle. That leadership, spiritual leadership in this particular context is a great struggle. And the implication in the opening of the letter is that Paul, uh, that Timothy may have been considering giving up altogether ministry, or at least requesting another appointment, another location. And who among us doesn't understand that in terms of discipleship, that the test that we're under as a faith test sometimes is not only just a test of faith, but as for Timothy, it was a test of his health as well. In fact, if you read later in this letter, 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul actually counsels Timothy to drink a little wine for the sake of his digestion and for his frequent infirmities. Now, I realize that's a life verse for some of you, for medicinal purposes only, of course. There's another interesting verse that I think is important for you to know in 1 Timothy 5.17, which says, give a bonus to leaders who do a good job especially the ones who work at preaching and teaching. Don't muzzle the ox. That's an interesting passage. That's my life verse. But for what it's worth, what Paul is counseling here, he's counseling a man, a spiritual leader, who's having a difficult time in his city to stay put, to persevere, to stick to it. One of the most needed and necessary attributes and characteristics of anyone leading in this culture today is perseverance, stick to Did you know that's a word? It is stick to which means to have a dogged determination, a dogged persistence. Einstein once said, it's not that I'm so smart it is simply this, I stay with the problem longer than others. That's perseverance, that's stick to itness. And so Paul begins, we read a portion of this last week, Paul begins, this is from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, the message. Listen to how he counsels Timothy. 
On my way to Macedonia, Timothy, I advised you to stay in Ephesus. Well, I haven't changed my mind. Stay right there on top of things so that, listen, the teaching stays on track. That's why determination, that's why stay put, for the consistency of the teaching. Some have been introducing fantasy stories that digress into silliness instead of pulling the people back to the center, deepening faith and obedience. The point of what we're urging is simply love. There's the theme, love uncontaminated by self-interest and counterfeit faith, a life open to God. Those who fail to keep this point wander off into cul-de-sacs of gossip and nonsense. They set themselves up as experts on religious issues, but haven't the foggiest idea of what they're holding forth with such imposing eloquence. When I think of experts, and I don't really believe in them, I remember something Mahatma Gandhi once said, the expert knows more and more about less and less until he knows everything about nothing. Experts. There is trouble in Ephesus. It's not unique to Ephesus, it's universal. It's true in the first century, it's true in the 21st century. There are some in the church in Ephesus who are deviating from apostolic doctrine, that is from sound teaching. You don't often hear sermons or messages in the church about doctrine, but good doctrine is critical to life. What you believe affects what we do. Poor theology leads to poor practice. Good teaching usually leads to good practice. I saw a bumper sticker the other day at Radnor. I don't know if I've ever mentioned Radnor to you or not, but it's one of my favorite places to walk. And I was at Radnor some time ago when I was looking at the cars in the lot and I found an interesting bumper sticker that said this, don't believe everything you think. That's critical. I think that would be good counsel for the culture that we live in, don't you? Don't believe everything you think. Sometimes, and this is confessional about the clergy, we get the idea that every thought, every whim, every notion, every opinion that we have is gospel truth, and it ain't. Sometimes our presuppositions are more fictional than factual more speculative than accurate. So don't believe every thought that you have. Here's another thought that I have. I want to put this on a bumper sticker. Think about everything you believe. I think that's critical. In other words, contemplate what it is that you hold to be true. Faith and reason are not enemies. They go hand in hand. I love Isaiah 118. Come, says the prophet Isaiah, and let us reason together. Don't believe everything you think, but think deeply about what you believe. It's a major issue in Ephesus and in the pastoral letters. Unsound teaching. In fact, if you flip to the second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verses 2 through 5, notice what Paul says. 
For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but instead, to suit our own desires, we will gather around us a great number of teachers to say what our itching ears want to hear. We will turn our ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths, but you, Timothy, keep, listen, keep your head in all situations, endure the struggle, do the work of a missionary, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Wishing something were true does not make it so. I saw a fascinating cartoon the other day that had an elementary, a first grader, up at the blackboard in math class saying to the teacher, teacher, two plus two just feels like five. Don't believe everything you feel and don't believe everything you think, but think deeply about what you believe. Years earlier than this letter, 1 Timothy, in Acts chapter 20, verse 20, Paul issued a similar warning about unsound teaching to the Ephesian elders before he left. And this is what he said. Keep watch over yourselves and over all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God that he obtained with the blood of his own son, for I know that after I've gone, savage wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. Some, even from your own group, will come distorting the truth in order to entice disciples to follow them. So be alert, remembering that for three years I, Paul, did not cease night and day to warn everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and, listen, and to the message of his grace, a teaching that is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all who are saved or sanctified. There's the core curriculum of the church. It's grace. A lot of talk these days about curri curriculum in our public schools, but I want to tell you this is the curriculum for our church. It's grace. In fact, we read the creedal formula, Charlie, that you read, that we also used as an affirmation of faith. It came directly from this personal letter. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Isn't it interesting what C.S. Lewis said is true, that Christianity has absolutely no message for those of us who do not realize we're sinners. And so if you don't acknowledge, if I don't acknowledge my sin, the gospel is of no use to me. But whenever you see in the scripture, this saying is sure and worthy of acceptance, it's an early creedal statement of the church of what we believe to be true. Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's the core value. That's the curriculum of the church the centrality of grace. This, of course, aligns with what Jesus said in Mark 2, verse 17. You remember in that scene when the Pharisees rejected Jesus, denounced Jesus because he was eating with the wrong people. 
He was eating with sinners and tax collectors at Levi's house, and he called Levi to be a disciple. You remember this, Levi, whose name is also Matthew. And when the Pharisees denounced Jesus for the people he ate with, Jesus said these words, those who are well do not need a doctor, only those who are sick. And I have not come to call the righteous, I've come to call sinners to repentance. That's grace. That's the curriculum of the church. Paul, in his previous life, B.C., that is before Christ, or before the Damascus Road when he was converted in his vision of the risen one, refers to himself in this letter as chief sinner, persecutor, blasphemer, a man guilty of violence who tried to wipe out the Christian message. And he had a change of heart. He had a vision that was made possible, in his own words, by overflowing grace. Or as Casey preached a couple of weeks ago, John 1:16, grace upon grace, grace a la grace, overflowing grace, a fountain of grace. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, chapter 5, verse 20, says, where sin increases, grace abounds more and more. You can't get away from it. That's the core doctrine of the church. It's interesting to me that in the language that the New Testament was written in, the Greek language, that word grace is charis, that's C-H-A-R-I-S. You recognize it as the root of our word charity, charis, which translates into love. Paul established this word in the Christian vocabulary, and get this, he used that word charis, grace, over a hundred times in the letters of the New Testament. It's our core curriculum. And yet, I know what you're thinking, grace is free, but it's not cheap. In fact, the grace of God cost the life of Jesus. He gave his life out of love for us. It's not cheap. You remember what Bonhoeffer said about cheap grace. Cheap grace is that grace that we bestow on ourselves it's the preaching of forgiveness without repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. Cheap grace is communion without confession. Cheap grace is, is grace without discipleship, without the cross, without Jesus living and incarnate. In the latter part of our text, Charlie, that you read, verses 18 through 20, when Paul is talking about unsound teaching and doctrine, he actually names names. Now, this is scary, isn't it? I feel sorry, a little bit sorry for Hymenaeus and Alexander. He called names. When he's writing to Timothy, he wants Timothy to know that when he's preaching and teaching, here's what you're up against. We don't know much about Alexander, but Hymenaeus we know. Hymenaeus was apparently a teacher in Ephesus who got off center out of kilter. In fact, Paul says he was shipwrecking the faith. Now, that's an image that Paul knew about because he'd been through it before. What happens in a shipwreck is the winds shift and all of a sudden blow the ship off of its course. Hymenaeus is leading the church to shipwreck. 
And you wonder what that means when you, you wonder when you read that, like what, what was he teaching? What, what, was the, what was the unsound teaching? And you go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, and you'll find it out. Avoid profane chatter, says Paul, for it will lead more and more people into unholiness, ungodliness, impiety, and their talk, listen, their discourse will spread like gangrene. Sounds like the media, doesn't it? Among them, these folks are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth. How? By claiming that the resurrection has already taken place. And they are upsetting the faith of many. What does that mean? They said that the resurrection had already happened. What are they talking about? They're not talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Everybody affirmed that. Hymenaeus was referring to the general resurrection of Christians after death. Here's what he was teaching. Hymenaeus claimed that the resurrection of the Christians that we believe is coming at the end has already happened through baptism. In other words, Hymenaeus said that the resurrection is spiritual. It's not physical. It's symbolic. It's just here and now, but it's not in the time to come. And there is a sense, isn't there? If you listen to the liturgy over which we baptize Gabrielle, there is a sense in which we do die to ourselves and live with Christ through baptism. That's a sacred symbol of that. But that doesn't do away with the actual resurrection that occurs in our physical death or in the liturgy that we call the final victory. And Hymenaeus is teaching that there is no physical resurrection. And he's swerving off course. In our creed, in the Apostles' Creed that was written four centuries after Jesus, we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. What does that mean? It's not this body, but it is a new body. When Jesus rose up from the grave, they didn't recognize him at first. It's a new body, but it's a Jewish way of saying that the body is not separate from mind and soul. We are one. And so in the general resurrection, there is the possibility and reality that we will know each other in terms of our identity. And Hymenaeus is teaching that there is no actual resurrection and he is shipwrecking the church. It was even Paul who said in 1 Corinthians 15, if for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people to be pitied most. There is a time coming in the eschaton, in the end time, in our death, when we will bloom to life in the resurrection. So what Paul is saying is that this grace, this charis, not only frees us from the power of sin, it frees us from the power of death. And that's not a hypothesis, that's not theory, that's tangible. Jesus said himself, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives and believes in me, even if you die, yet shall you live. And that kind of grace is not temporary, it's not temporal, it's eternal. It's not just here and now. It is there and then. 
think about that. Let me give you an example and I'm finished. This past August, first week in August, we had a dear friend who was a part of this church who sent to our home an orchid, a beautiful potted plant. Now, I have to confess to you that neither Sherry or I, neither my wife or I have a green thumb. In fact, I'm better known for considering the lilies than contemplating them. But she sent us this beautiful, this beautiful orchid. We placed it in a strategic spot in our house where we could see it every day. We put it on an antique table that was a gift to me in our first church. And we put it there in front of the front window where we could see it from the road. And that beautiful orchid bloomed all fall, August, September, October, November, on into December. I want to tell you about our friend. Our friend who gave it to us was suffering from a chronic disease, a terminal illness, and she was hopeful to live to see Christmas and her birthday, which happened December the 26th. We placed the orchid there, and every day we would look at it. The blooms, the blossoms were beautiful. And on December the 26th, her birthday, she died. We got the call, and then my wife called me into the front room and said, you're not going to believe this. And sometime between Christmas Day and the 26th, all of those beautiful blossoms had fallen onto the table. There below the plant lay the petals on the table. My wife, who is not a superstitious person, said, this is more than ironic, it's somewhat prophetic, isn't it? I said, I think it is. I discovered since then that these hearty plants, these potted orchids, can last for a hundred years. And furthermore, I've discovered that even after the blooms have died, if you will cut them back to the nubs, almost to the roots, they will return, and when they do, they're more beautiful than before. It occurs to me that that is the nature, the organic nature of an orchid, and that's the nature of God. That's our doctrine. <laughs> That's our teaching. I told that story to my friend's grandchildren and I told it at the funeral. And I've decided that that woman is an orchid. That she is more alive and more beautiful now than she ever was before. In the bulb there is a flower in the seed an apple tree, in cocoons a hidden promise, butterflies will soon be free. In the cold and snow of winter, there's a spring that waits to be, unrevealed until it's seasoned, something God alone can see. That's our teaching. And that teaching will keep the church on track that's the grace of God that is available now in part, but in the time to come, forever. That's the kind of sound teaching that leads to sound 
living that becomes love uncontaminated. May it be so in you, in me, and in us to the glory of God. Amen.